Education is what's important. Training, preparation for the expected. Education, preparation for the unexpected. Good morning, Team Curlac community, and welcome back to another episode of the Brewcast on behalf of Marine Corps University, Marine Corps University Foundation, and the Brew Kulak Center. Uh, this is our series designed to connect the worlds of the warfighter and PME with the best in innovative and creative thought. I remain your host, Major Ian Brown, Operations Officer at the Kulak Center. Before we begin, please remember all opinions expressed here are those of the individual and do not necessarily reflect the views of the Krulak Center, Marine Corps University, United States Marine Corps, the Federal Bureau of Investigation, or any other agency of the U.S. government. All right, so today's episode, U.S. policymakers and strategists have long understood there are many more instruments involved in the national security policy development and implementation than the DIME tool, which I'm sure many in the audience are familiar with, and that's uh, diplomacy, information, military, and economic instruments of national power. Law enforcement, often misunderstood or, or sometimes forgotten, is also one of these instruments. Yet it possesses a powerful combination of hard and soft power, complements all the other instruments of national power, and can be wielded at all levels, political, strategic, operational, and tactical. In today's episode, Marine Corps University's FBI Chair, Supervisory Special Agent Joseph F. Garbato, will address existing generalizations and misconceptions, define the instrument, and underscore its utility. Supervisory Special Agent Joseph Garbato is a 22-year veteran of the Federal Bureau of Investigation, currently serving here at Marine Corps University as the FBI Chair. He is a graduate of the Pennsylvania State University with a bachelor's degree in business logistics. He has 10 years of operations and logistics experience in the private sector, is a retired U.S. Army Reserve officer and also a graduate of the Marine Corps War College here at the university, earning a master's degree in strategic studies. So, sir, welcome to the program. Good to have you. And uh, I'll get your slides up going here and okay, thank you very uh, much. we'll be able to get to it. And thanks to everyone in the audience uh, for being here today uh, and to kind of circle back on some of the opening comments, um, particularly my experience here in PME. Uh, the instrument, the law enforcement instrument, national power. It was actually striking to me um, how the conversations do revolve around dime, and I find myself in the back always saying, "What about me? What about law enforcement?" Um, so about a month ago, I was asked to do a brown bag, and typically, a physician would do one uh, on on the service they represent. In this case, the FBI. But I felt imperative to speak to this particular issue uh, during that brown bag because of the experience that I've, uh, I've noticed. And it's not just here. Actually, if you talk with folks within the law enforcement community, they will look at you puzzled if you use the term law enforcement instrument of national power. So it's, it's something that de definitely needs uh, awareness in, in my view. All right, so uh, here's what I hope to accomplish today. Uh, we'll talk a little bit about some of the misconceptions and generalizations of the of the of the instrument uh, i want to then look through it two different lens both pre and post 9 11. Uh, ultimately i'll try to define it for you in simplest terms uh, we really can't have a conversation in my view uh, of law enforcement without addressing the current context we're certainly going to address that and ultimately why it matters to everyone so the, in reality the average american has very limited interaction uh, with law enforcement absent a speeding ticket or perhaps your neighbor happens to live next door that's a that's a law enforcement officer generally speaking uh, the there is there is little contact little contact and as a result um uh an allure if you will which i think you know if, if you look at hollywood you look at tv um they've, they've latched on to what the american public 
likes. And, and, and the American public does have an appetite for law enforcement type of materials. Um, now, there's a good side of that. It actually helps law enforcement in recruiting. Um, so there's a blessing there. The flip side of that is, generally speaking, what you see on, uh, you know, be it on TV or in the movies, is a gross misrepresentation of what law enforcement is all about. Um, so hopefully we'll bring some of that uh, clarity to, to, uh, to the issue here today. Um, and and, and this, this type of view goes back decades, right? You think of terms that have, that have been used and applied to law enforcement officers and cops and robbers, and, and most recently you see a lot of tough guy kind of shows. Um, in reality of it, uh, it's a grind type of a job. Um, you come in every day and do your job and trying to serve the American public the best you can. Um, and it's not nearly as sexy as you see it is on TV. Within the national security apparatus, uh, when we talk about law enforcement, it's generally referred to as the home game. The military, Department of State, um, the dime component, uh, you know, as, as, a, as, a, as a whole is really more about projecting overseas. And the law enforcement contingent has that home game um, uh, type of type of mission set, and as a result, it's considered really more local in its in its uh, exercise, um, and almost exclusively reactionary. We think in terms of first responders to a crisis, uh, first responders um, to an event that occurs, uh, say an accident on a highway, um, and very little. Uh, attention is brought towards the fact that there's actually a strategic game. Um, so uh, in that respect, uh, it, it is more than just the home game, and we'll definitely get into that today. Um, part of the uh, history uh, of law enforcement, if you go way back, say at the turn of the uh, you know, 19th century, uh, it was very much local and reactionary in a sense. Um, and as time progressed pre-9-11, the environment did did come somewhat competitive within agencies, particularly at the federal level, but but also at the state and local and county levels. Uh, and as a result, silos were created. That was just the way it was. Uh, I guess to a degree that exists in any organizational competition, if you will. Um, but it was it was part of the reason, if you look at the 9/11 report, as to why we actually uh, missed that missed that target set, um, and why 9/11 actually did occur. Um, and 9-11 and did force transition, it did force reform. So if there's anything that could possibly good come out of it, um, is the imperative that the, the law enforcement community actually needs to, needs to change. And what I mean by change, I mean more than just policy. Uh, it was a culture that needed to change. And it, uh, ironically enough, as I sit here in the Marine Corps University, it took a Marine to fix it. Robert Mueller was assigned, was appointed the director of of the FBI uh, the summer prior to 9-11 uh, with the mission. Uh, and that mission, whatever that was, changed within a few months. Uh, and that meant bringing the FBI and along with it, and I say that along with it because the FBI is uh, often reviewed as a leader within uh, the law enforcement community. So the actions that we take, the manner in which we do business, uh, is often looked at as a model, uh, not just within federal government, but also along the lines of state, local, and county, as well as international for now. So because of that, uh, the changes that, that were made um, as a result of 9-11 um, had a cascading effect throughout the community at large. Not to say we didn't have a global type of mission set, 
pre 9-11, but it was certainly expanded thereafter. And we'll talk a little bit about what that looks like uh, as, as we go through this presentation. Um, we, we had to really become a part of the national security infrastructure, more so than we already were. It, it, was, it was, had to be more than just working counterintelligence investigations or counterterrorism investigations. It meant that we had to take uh, a, a place within the national security uh, infrastructure. In order to do that, we had to change our focus, and we wound up becoming, and we are today, uh, and I would, I would submit we do very, very well today uh, in the modern world, if you will, intel-driven. In fact, our vision is ahead of the threat, and I think that's extremely uh, relevant and appropriate for the kind of work law enforcement does. I started the Bureau pre-9-11 and was assigned to a task force in the Miami Division uh, in 2001. And I found myself on a JTTF, Joint Terrorism Task Force. There were two in Miami at the time, as I, as I recollect, and there were about 12 drug squads, if I can recall, because that was the priority at that time. Post-9-11, it did a flip-flop. We wound up having far more terrorism squads uh, than we actually did have drug squads at that point in time. And that remains to this day, as far as I, uh, as far as my, the best of my knowledge. If you look at the FBI priorities to this day, terrorism is the number one priority that we focus on, because it could happen at any time, it could come from anywhere, and the impact of it could be devastating. In terms of task force jointness, um, that has that has really blossomed. Joint terrorism task forces and task force environments at large uh, have certainly increased, at least through my view and through my optic. Um, and I think that's a very, very good thing for the community. Uh, corporateness is a part of that change that Director Mello brought toward us, and that meant to me a refinement and, uh, and, a, and a focus on strategic uh, endeavors. Um, so the FBI strategy, as I recall, as a young agent, I, I saw it change with, you know, before my eyes, and it continues to uh, to change over time to meet the needs um, of 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 the public. One of the things I'll highlight, which we'll return to towards the back end of this presentation, is the warrior culture, frontline heroes type of mindset. Post 9-11, many, many people volunteered to get into the fight. And when those folks were done with their term overseas, uh, a natural landing pad, if you will, was to go back into the security field, into law enforcement. Uh, and many of those soldiers and Marines and airmen sailors did in fact do that in a sense that's a very good thing right because that that mindset of protect and serve uh, and that uh, awareness of national security and security uh, apparatus exists but at the same time that warrior culture brought was brought home uh, which i think has manifested in some problems for us uh, as we see it in the current day but we'll revisit that later on so uh, as we prompted before we started here we talked a little bit about dime and it's it seems to always be about dime but I'm here in the back jumping up and down saying, hey, don't forget about Phil, especially don't forget about the L. Um, and it took Joint Doctrine 1-18 to actually go forward is to say that that's the truth, which ultimately uh, did a more, uh, not that it didn't exist, but it really highlighted attachment, if you will, to dime, where we went from four elements to seven. So let's play with the numbers a little bit. I, I'm a firm believer that words matter, but I believe numbers matter as well. So if you look at what number four means, and I just did this on a whim, it turns out that number four represents the number of a strong foundation. I thought that was pretty appropriate. But the number seven is the number of perfections 
means security, safety, and rest. So for those of you focused on dime, I submit to you that's a solid foundation. But the nation and its people cannot truly be safe, cannot truly be secure, and cannot truly rest until we embrace Bill. So all that said, what is it? What is the law enforcement um, instrument of national power? Well, as we also said earlier in the opening, is that it does span the strategic scope, both from the political all the way down to the local. And it cannot really be executed without heavy representation of its partners, underscoring that partnership uh, requirement. Uh, we can't necessarily uh, work overseas and support our partners unless we have those relationships develop and the infrastructure is there, which we'll certainly get into today. Let's break it down uh, in our explanation and first talk about the law component of enforcement. Because when we think about it locally, we think of law enforcement as an entity, but there's really two functions. And I would argue that for every law, there's going to be someone that's going to try to break it for one reason or another, whether it's just a lack of awareness or purposeful. So from a law component, from the creation of law to the having the expertise, both at the state, county, local, federal level, as well as international level, to have that ability, the strategic awareness of how that represents across the national security apparatus is critical. Uh, without that knowledge, there really is no enforcement component. The enforcement component now steps forward. And when you, like I said, we talked a little bit about TV, um, you know, cops doing cop things, having worked cases for many years, nothing goes forward without having a robust relationship in, in the federal case, uh, for example, uh, is that relationship with the United States Attorney's Office. Right? It takes the, whether it's state, county, or federal uh, adjudicators to go forward with the case, proceed from it. It's the law enforcement officers that really work for the attorneys because they're the ones that are going to prosecute those cases. Therefore, that partnership is critical. Um, and it requires that type of relationship uh, to be built over time. Uh, and through success, you know, is ultimately where we have that impact uh, down the road. So what does it look like? This may be surprising to some. But when you look at the United States law enforcement community, it's approximately 18,000 agencies. Now, it comprises everything from the federal down to the tribal or even university level and everything in between. It's about 800,000 sworn employees. In comparison, if you look at the United States Army, uniform, 1.43 million. And the Marine Corps is a 214,000 plus. So it's an immense, the, the law enforcement instrument national power is an immense body, um, has tremendous power and ability, capabilities, and has, has leverage and influence throughout the world. So essentially, here's what it looks like. Took a little deep dive in here and look at a couple of different departments. We'll look at the Department of Justice briefly, uh, and then we'll look at the Department of Homeland Security. FBI falls under the Department of Justice. You see on the bottom there, I have in red is U.S. attorneys uh, who service all the federal uh, law enforcement uh, agencies. And those are some of the agencies you, you, uh, you're probably very familiar with. Some that you may be less f uh, familiar with are the Alcohol, Tobacco, and Firearms and the Bureau of Prisons. They sometimes get forgotten in the mix and they play a vital role uh, in U.S. national security. Uh, then we have Homeland Security, which is a creation after 9-11. Um, there's actually quite a conversation back in the time of maybe doing away with the FBI or folding it under Homeland Security. Uh, not a part of that debate, ultimately where we are today is the creation of Homeland Security. The FBI still falls under the Department of Justice, as we just looked at. 
I want to call out uh, U.S. Coast Guard as one of the unique uh, agencies because although it is part of the law enforcement community because it has impartiality a law enforcement mission, it is also part of the military. Uh, along those lines, pick a service. They all have their own military police investigative agencies uh, to to secure their own people in the, in the properties that they uh, they uh, have control over. So really, when you look at it, although we tend to think of them in separate entities, they're really integrated. They're integrated in many ways. They're integrated from the personal level. As I mentioned earlier, a lot of uh, military folks end up in, in, in law, law enforcement. The mission sets, protect and serve, are very similar. Uniform, structure, all those kinds of things are very similar between the two agencies. Um, and in terms of use of force, we both have use of force policies. Um, and the reckless use of force uh, will cause a bad day for anybody. So uh, we take that very, very seriously. So where is it? Everywhere. And it's everywhere because New York's national security is threatened everywhere. We collect intelligence everywhere. Our partnerships exist everywhere, not just within the city that one lives, but within the country that they live. And ultimately, unfortunately, reality is crime is everywhere. So let's take another look at dying and see how the expanded law enforcement footprint has impacted DIME as a result of 9-11. Well, for one, our embassy presence did expand. Now, pre-9-11, we, we did have uh, legal attaches and some staff in some of the larger embassies, but that exploded post-9-11. That, that, that footprint definitely did expand. Narrative, narrative's critical. Um, you can do 100 things right, and if you do one thing wrong, that's what the public's gonna remember. And again, return to that when we get into the current context. But overwhelmingly, the law enforcement community does a fantastic job. But when you do something wrong, it does gain the attention of folks. So that narrative is important. Um, and law enforcement is doing a much better job of not necessarily controlling the narrative, but utilizing that narrative for both good and for, uh, you know, being, being transparent, uh, which is a good thing. Uh, in terms of the military, uh, FBI specifically, they're not restricted to the FBI. There are law enforcement at, uh, embeds that have been deployed both fore and aft. Or again, we talked about um, the presence uh, of folks um, in embassies, but more, more so if you look at the 9-11 footprint, there are many an FBI agent that was deployed into the sandbox um, because the certain skill sets they brought, whether it was interrogation or evidence collection, um, so we did have a lot of folks overseas um, for that for that 20 year period, and they would rotate in and out. From a COCOM perspective, much like the embassies, we have attaches, uh, we call them military liaison officers that are embedded in all the COCOMs. That footprint typically looks like GS-15 with GS-14, both special agents uh, and some staff, depending upon the size of the COCOM. Uh, what that has done, again, post 9-11, has created uh, a dialogue where we have a much better understanding of what capabilities are, a much better understanding of how we go about our business, so business operations. It also has helped us in one of the reasons why I'm here and why we actually have a sabbatical program for FBI agents and, and, and other federal partners to come to and participate in PME is to help expand the language capability. Anybody that's in the federal government knows that it seems like every agency has its own different language, and it could cause barriers. 
So having folks embedded in COCOMs and going to PME and things of that nature help break down those barriers because we start learning each other's language, learning each other's capabilities, learning each other's boundaries, and all that feeds into a, a much, much safer and much more effective apparatus. And lastly, economics, well, we're going to put this in the terms of needs. Um, you can't expand without needs. And the FBI just had its largest budget that I'm aware of just for this 2023, which I believe was $10.8 billion. Um, small compared to most agencies, so at least particularly when you're looking at the Department of Defense. But for us, it was the largest one that we've had. Um, and with that, you know, our operations will continue to expand as we continue to increase our technological capabilities um, and, uh, and improve infrastructure. Now, I've kind of alluded to in a few, few uh, talking points about speaking about our partnerships overseas. One of the most important ones is, is, is Interpol. Uh, 195 member states, it is truly the mechanism that allows us uh, to seek justice overseas. And that's, and that's not just for the United States. Those 195 member states have the ability to seek justice for their, for their uh, own citizens by way of this. It's an, Interpol is an enabler. It allows uh, different agencies to work together uh, to seek justice for their people. Um, it's an immensely powerful tool that will reach all four corners of the world. And just like that, we're at the current context. I'll take a pause here for a second. There's three, three pictures that you see. Carefully, purposely selected each of these three slides, these, these pictures. I carefully selected these because each individual one, let alone all three together, invoke emotion, as they should. Or to use Clausewitz's words, passion of the people. I want to give three examples of law enforcement activity. Two of them will fall in the law bucket, and one of them will fall in the enforcement bucket to help kind of set the table for this, this conversation. So from a law perspective, right now there are two very hotly debated legal battles occurring within the United States. Bucket one uh, happens to be abortion rights, and bucket two happens to be gun rights. These two issues again, are hotly debated, and may, may very well impact the next presidential election. So again, the power of law and the potential impact it has on enforcement have great reach. The next issue I would like to talk about briefly is that of, of drug trade. And right now, the big issue for us in our nation in the free world uh, is the opioid addictions and most recently fentanyl. I believe this year we passed 80,000 people killed as a result of its abuse. And by all, by all studies, we'll probably break 100,000 this, this year. Just tremendous, tremendous numbers if you think about it. Why does that matter? Well, we have to look at where it comes from. It animates from China. A combination of smuggling and unethical behavior, the precursors for fentanyl, created in China, they would make their way overseas through Latin America and ultimately smuggle them into the United States. It's a very real issue. It impacts families all over the world. And it is and will most likely also be, much like the other two examples I've brought forth, may very well impact who the next president is. Let's look back at history because this is nothing new. There have been wars in the law enforcement community for decades. The war was a war on crime, war on terror, war on drugs, war on cybercrime. These things are used politically, and therefore they are relevant. 
and therefore they do have an impact on the community, the communities they serve. In terms of national security, it puts law enforcement right up there in front. Now, in terms of unrest, I in no way support the use of violence, nor does the FBI or any law enforcement agency. I think I can safely say that, that we would promote the use of violence to, to promote an agenda. Those people that raised police stations after the George Floyd murder, those folks that attacked the, the, uh, the Capitol, can and will be held accountable. But in terms of the discord, in terms of the conversation, it is democracy at work. We spoke of that force protection warrior culture, and it does exist. And it has caused communities to ask the question, protect and serve who? The people or themselves? Change is necessary. Okay, then the question that should be asked is, well, what does change look like? Well, I will offer what a model that what change could look like. Rather than protect and serve, perhaps we should use different words. Again, as I stated earlier, words do matter. Perhaps community and guardianship could be words that we can use as a model for the way we go about our law enforcement business. Perhaps through community and guardianship, and by demonstrating vulnerability, we can build trust. What does that mean? Well, we are the authorities. So for us to to reach out to our communities, to state when we have done wrong, what we could do better. That's a, that's a form of vulnerability. And that type of vulnerability can gain trust with the communities we serve. Education and understanding. I mentioned earlier that I uh, was said in my, uh, in my bio that I did attend Marine Corps War College. Now I have this my distinct honor to be here as the FBI chair. Professional military education is an amazing, amazing creation. I wish law enforcement had it, but it does not exist. As a result, we have a long way to go. We, we have to learn through experiences, learn through mistakes. As a result, through this education and understanding, and we do have some components, and so I wanna call out the FBI National Academy. It's the premier PME-like program uh, in the nation, uh, but it only touches about 1,000 law enforcement offices a year, a small bucket compared to the uh, to the 800,000 that we talked about earlier. It's just not enough. So ways that we can to educate our, 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 our law enforcement officers so they have a better understanding of the issues at hand need to be explored, and I would argue, uh, at, the, at the highest levels of government. Through this model, I think we can reach a partnership. And part of that partnership has to, has to address some of our past. It has to acknowledge what law enforcement past is. And for those of you who don't know, the law enforcement community was created uh, centuries ago, and its primary purpose was actually to control the slave trade, prevent slaves from running, and when they did, to bring them back. That is our history, that is factual, and we need to acknowledge that. That acknowledgement has to happen before we can move forward as a community. And I encourage our agencies to, do, to pursue that. In a sense, law enforcement is a soft power. In a sense, it's a hard power, depending upon how it's, how it's utilized and depending upon the need. I found this article uh, by Dr. Joseph Nye that did a tremendous job of describing what the differences are and looking back at history in terms of the relationship between soft and hard power. And this particular quote about the Roman Empire not didn't just achieve greatness strictly by force, right? It's a culture issue, one that could attract others. All law enforcement is local. 
but it is also global. Social media has changed this, and those narratives will take form. After George Floyd, there were rioting in New Zealand within days. There are folks across the world that feel the same way, that feel unrecognized or treated unfairly. This is not a uniquely American thing. This is something that is global. And as a result, this is one of the reasons why this narrative matters. Back to our friend Clausewitz, he suggests warfare is merely a continuation of policy by all means. I offer law enforcement is merely a continuation of policy by all means. Because the political goal is not just force, as it would be with warfare, but also the threat of force. And its means of reaching it can never be considered in isolation. But what if we looked at this through a different lens? What if the political object was partnerships and understanding? Think about that for a moment. It's a narrative change, and one that could have be far-reaching and can impact strategy. We take great pride in the rule of law. We absolutely do. Most Western nations do. It's part of our society, and we, we react poorly when things go wrong. And we hold our leaders accountable for this, and we should. The fact that the, Ameri the, uh, the law enforcement instrument national power is included, rule of law is included in the dialogue, is a huge step in the right direction. We're in an era of great power competition. Soft power is the way to attract others towards our narrative. To use a few sports analogies, we can't afford to leave men on base. Nor can we allow yards after the catch if we're playing defense. Every time we do things right, it's always expected. But when we do things wrong, our adversaries, our competitors, will be right there to point those things out. Therefore, we have to be always mindful of the impact of what we do and how we do it. Again, soft power arises from the attractiveness of our, of our, of our culture, our ideas, and our policy. That's simply not enough, though. It can either enhance our stature or it can hurt our stature depending upon the eyes of others. It's words that have power, but ultimately it's our actions. And when our actions don't complement our words, that doesn't help in great power company. We need to be mindful of that always, and that's something that I hope that the law enforcement instrument national power can consider. Uh, I don't think this is something that we bring to work with us in a toolkit every day, thinking about that. Uh, not that it should be at the forefront necessarily, but it should always be in the back of our minds that what we do and how we do it cascades throughout the globe and ultimately impacts our ability to compete. Soft power, the means to success, is argued in world politics, I argue in all politics. And that's that in terms of the presentation. Those are some references that I suggested uh, that you, you can take a look at if you want to look into this a little bit more on your own. Um, and hopefully we can have some questions. Yeah, great. Um, so. We do, uh, we do have some questions already in the chat here, and I've been madly scribbling down on my paper um, because there was a lot of uh, a lot of really interesting stuff to cover. And I'll so I guess before I get to the question, just one thing that in how you sort of shape that, especially talking about narrative and soft power, I want to just take a side moment and throw this out to you know any any Marines, especially those Marines who were you know more deeply interested in our own maneuver warfare doctrine, because a large chunk of our doctrine came from ideas about competition from John Boyd and a bunch of presentations he gave. But he also talked like exactly, Boyd talked about exactly what you were getting after there, which is the power of strategic narrative and how that narrative shared to a wider audience can be, um, it's something he called it a, a vision so noble, quote unquote. And he, he noted that as one of the highest aspects of successful competition where that 
message and how your actions met that message could be a possibly the most powerful tool in competition. And he talked about where like the message, it attract, it, it coheres your own organization more tightly together. It actively undermines your, your competitors because but by both the theory and the application, like you show your words are matching your action actions and your competitor, if you know, a, a probably non-democratic um, authoritarian type regime, you know, right. is the opposite. Like they see that and their people see that their own people, their own government's things, actions don't match their words. That causes friction and pulls that community apart. And then it goes after the fence sitters too. Like the non-aligned folks, the folks who don't know which way to go, you know, your, your positive vision um, can not as, maybe it pulls them off the fence to join you actively, or maybe at least keeps them on the fence from not actively helping your competitors. And in that case, hey, at least it's not an asset for your, your opponent. Everybody wants to be with a winner at the end of the day. Um, and, and I think we can look at, you know, in terms of the importance of that narrative, I think that's what we see happening right now in Iran. Um, and the movement that's that's happening at a grassroots level in Tehran. Um, you know, I, I wish safety for, for everyone that is being so brave as to protest uh, what they're doing. They literally are taking their lives in their hand. Um, but, but, but no different than what has occurred in many Western states, you know, to where we are today, right? We all had to go through that crucible, if you will, um, to get to the position where we are. And, uh, I, you know, in, in one sense, you could argue that the negative view um, that is often taken by our adversaries and, and, and folks that wish to be um, is a compliment. Um, but at the same time, you know, we owe it to our people to, 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 to not uh, make mistakes and to, and to try to. But, but, but government is what it is, right? It slowly changes. Nothing happens overnight. Um, so a problem occurs. We try to figure out how to go about doing it. You have all these different opinions involved, and ultimately we find a way. Ultimately we find a way, and we, that's kind of an ongoing joke in the bureau. Um, you know, we may have a challenge, and ultimately we get it right. It's just not going to happen overnight, generally speaking, right? Because there's there's different ideas, and it's that democratic type of process where we have to kind of talk it through and figure out what works. And sometimes the, the you know the majority opinion will win, and it just doesn't work, and then ultimately we find our way out there. So. Uh, th those natural business type processes to kind of look back towards my, my business past, um, you know, that kind of that, that kind of thinking uh, permeates government, permeates all different nations um, and its ability to figure out what makes sense. Um, we're going through that right now in law enforcement. We absolutely are. Uh, it's painful. Um, some people are getting hurt. Um, and it's it's sometimes I go to bed at night thinking, what are we doing? Um, but I'm hopeful. I'm hopeful that we're going to get it right over time. Uh, why? Because the overwhelming majority of people in service, whether it's uniformed or non-uniformed service, in the case of law enforcement, many of them are uniformed, are great people. They are there to serve, truly serve the people that they're, uh, they're given the mandate to protect. Um, but back to that narrative, it just takes one to kind of undo so many things. Yeah. And actually, I have a, that 99% I have a point about that talking about, you know, um, information leaks, which maybe we'll see if we get to that uh, here in the discussion. Because like you said, it, yeah, it only takes one. Yes. Um, but I think the, you know, going back to the strategic narrative is it, uh, 
no organization is ever going to get it like a hundred percent. Right. And I think it's, it's, it's partly because like who we are as human beings, like human beings, they can unintentionally make mistakes or you have the more criminal element, right. Where you're deliberately violent, you know, attempting to undermine the social order can be, you know, in a very small thing to, a, you know, a larger international criminal network. Absolutely. Um, but this, I think that going back to the strategic narrative point is, you know, you are, you give the message of law enforcement to try to go after and cover these problems. And then if the actions match the words, right? Like maybe you don't get it. There's that always that 1% of the time, but the, like, the audience sees, or, you know, the, the, the target audience, whether it's at home or abroad sees you're making an effort, you're making an effort to get your organization to act according to the standard that it talks about. Um, and I think, and to tie it back to the doctrinal point, like the, uh, the competing uh, or Marine, Dor Marine Corps doctrinal publication that came out on competing a couple years ago, I think it, uh, it, I think it gets after that same aspect too, is like, you have to, you're never, it's not going to be perfect, but you have to say you're aiming for that better ideal than your competitors around the world. You know, whether it's malign actor or criminal organizations or authoritarian regimes who are trying to rewrite the world order, you got to say it and then you have to do it as much as you possibly can. And you may not always get it right, but the fact is you have to be seen trying to do it. And that's how you get that competitive advantage. So to, again, I'm going to put this out to all the Marines, the audience, like this, this ties directly into the doctrine and the, and the, you know, our older warfighting doctrine, but also our newer approach to um, competing, understanding, like we're not always fighting wars, right? We are always competing and making our actions match our words in all environments is what gets us that competitive advantage. Yeah, you know, in this current environment, it, it seems what's on the forefront of everybody's mind is how not to go to war, right? I mean, I just spent 20 years in war. Now it's like how not to go in war because war with a great power, right? I mean, the outcome would be devastating. Yeah, no, nobody, wins. nobody wins. Yeah. All right. Okay, I'll get off my soapbox and try and I'll get to the questions of the audience here and then or, and uh, some of the things I noted here. So I let's see, what did I have down here first? Um, yeah, so I guess let's start with the leaker because that's fresh, fresh in my mind, right? Okay. You know, you mentioned in the uh, sort of the pre-9-11, the post-9-11 approach, pre-9-11, there were a lot of silos thrown up for various reasons that, you know, prevented the interagency um, interactions where everybody's got a little piece of the puzzle and then maybe could have seen the larger puzzle before, you know, something catastrophic had happened. And then that shifted in the post-9-11 world. Yeah. Um, but now getting to this world saturated in all kinds of, digital media and so many different vectors by which, um, you know, people can conduct malign activities. Like I still, we, I went in our, one of our, our rabbit holes with Dr. Weber, um, we spent about half the episode on this talking about the possible, you know, cause it talked a lot about, you know, um, conditions and, or intelligence assessments of Ukraine. And like we were saying the words, this leaker put it out on a gaming chat channel for a bunch of people who watched YouTuber, like a YouTuber who liked to play Minecraft. Yeah. And just all those words together, I'm like, I feel like I'm taking crazy pills here, but this is what's happened. So the, and here's now here's the challenge in that new world. Silos are gone, right? Everybody's interacting and, and sharing information and stuff, but that potentially creates the, you know, the greater risk for all it takes is that one person who's got access across all those silos to blast out information to the detriment of our, whether it's military law enforcement, right. you know, um, intelligence, all those different operations. Does that, are, are we potentially at a, at a risk now? With, he's not the first one, right? He's just the latest. Um, 
do you think we're possibly at a risk of that pendulum swinging back the other way to more compartmentalization with all the negative impacts that that potentially has? Well, look, um, I, I don't serve at the top level uh, of the FBI. I'm not in the director's conference room having these dialogues. Um, so that said, my placement here as the FBI chair immersed in the national security uh, apparatus by way of PME, um, law enforcement, just like warfare, is a human endeavor. It, it has always been and it will always be. People are going to do things either with malign intent or because they're just human and they make a mistake. I don't see that ever changing. That said, I think it would be a bad thing if we reverted back to pre-9-11 timeframes where we put up more walls. Um, in a sense, the way the government operates is reflective of the open society that we are. And by way of that open society, there are vulnerabilities. Um, but that's the price of being an open society. Um, there's been a lot of talk about over um, classification. There's probably a lot of truth to that. Um, better safe than sorry kind of mentality. Mm -hmm. But the reverse of that would be horrific, right? Um, you can't be you can't be too open, but you have to be responsible enough to classify at the appropriate level. And I think that's the that's the point where we need to kind of revisit um, and hold our people accountable uh, when when something's done wrong. Now, look, I mean, we've, we we've had this issue here at, at the lowest level, but we've also had this issue in the White House, in secular different administrations, right? So um, it's a human endeavor. People do things either purposely or not. Um, and I don't see that changing as long as human beings, human are, beings around, are around. Right? Involved. Uh, now, we hope to learn from these three big mistakes. And I say three because we have two presidents do it. Uh, and now we had this this uh, guardsman do it. Um, let's hope this shows enough light on, on, on the issue uh, and we can uh, get our stuff together. Yeah. Okay. Um, I'm going to do one more thing here and then get into uh, some of the questions in the chat. Um, this kind of goes back to that, that pre post 9-11 um, shift. And you'd mentioned that on the post 9-11 shift, you went from or from towards being Intel driven, trying to get ahead of the threat. Yeah. Right. And obviously, like not getting ahead of the threat for the, you know, the terrorists that flew the planes in the various buildings. That was the result. Um, but I think it, it's probably fair to say that in as the, the post 9-11 approach began to be applied um, and so sort of breaking down that compartmentalization, uh, you know, I, I think it's fair to say people have raised questions. And I think at the time, right, like the Patriot Act came out and questions were almost immediately asked, you know, what does this do to, to civil liberties versus law enforcement? Right. Where's that balance? Um, so I guess I'd say in the as the as the you know FBI and other law enforcement are are sort of looking to do that shift from the you know force threat of force partnership understanding, where 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 do you see that sort of that balance going? Um, uh, is it is it is it trying to hone the media? Is it swing them one way or the other? Um, and you know and then keeping in mind like as you sort of said like you have to be, you have to get your operations right 100% of the time from the law enforcement it's perspective, whereas compared to the terrorist, who remains the number one possible threat, right. they only got to get it right once. That's right, that's right. 
and, and it seems like the, the methodology doesn't need to be as grand to make a splash, right? Um, certainly 9-11 was a huge splash um, that we're still probably rebounding from in certain sets, uh, certain aspects. Um, but some of the active shooter situations that we see on almost a near daily basis, it seems, um, have significant impact too, right? Um, you link that to terrorist organization, right, and it's going to have an impact. Um, I, I think ultimately, though, in terms of what we're looking at, in terms of classifications and our ability to, to manage information, again, you know, we, we revert back to uh, our industries or human endeavors. And really, what the, they'll, they'll, I'm sure all the agencies are going to review their policies in terms of how, how we're going about classification. Uh, but it ultimately comes down to the individual collector or analyst, whoever is going to be writing up this document, and that frontline leader to review it uh, to ensure that, that that document is classified at the appropriate level. Um, I think that's, that's probably the area where things can go left or right. And usually it goes towards the abundance of caution. Mm -hmm. um, and I, again, that's human nature. Um, so there are probably efforts to re-educate uh, across the national security apparatus to take a look at their first, take a look at their policies and see how we're doing things, why we're doing things the way we are. There may be some policy changes uh, and then probably ultimately become an educational uh, action item across, across the, the community. Okay. Uh, thank you. Okay, so I'll get into some of the audience questions here. Um, I'll start with, we got several from Vizier Riot, and um, I'm going to kind of put these all together because a lot of them touch on China. Okay. As a, and we know China, China is a challenge in a lot of different ways um, to include law enforcement. So um, you mentioned the example, you know, fentanyl getting funneled into the United States is one of those challenges. Um, other challenges include the... Uh, in, in other countries where Chinese, you know, and, and this is part of the, the challenge of like, you know, the, the gray zone, um, sort of fog of war, fog of law enforcement, you can't always directly tie these groups back to the government, but they operate as, um, as you know, unofficial extensions. And that, that includes getting into uh, pulling, you know, blood diamonds out of Africa, into human trafficking uh, in a number of different places. In terms of you know we're looking at uh, legal fishing operations, yep. which are they are in the they are in the um, I guess the Western Hemisphere now, right? You know they're 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 in the Americas. You know they're probably clo they're closer to South America in terms of the impact. Right. Yeah, but the point is that's our backyard, right? It is it is not a it's not a distance problem anymore. And then plugging into something uh, relatively sort of recent headline is the uh, you know the uncovering of Chinese police stations, right? Like foreign state. Um, covert law enforcement looking after their own nationals here as sort of a shadow law enforcement organization. What what some of those are old challenges, some of those are new. Um, but sort of what are the what are some of the the new approaches um, or that, that law enforcement has had to take to deal with these? Um, while China still on paper at least is their their signatory, so all these a lot of these things, right? You know, on paper. Um, correct me if I'm wrong, but they're probably part of Interpol. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So what do you do? What do you do when, you know, the nation is a signatory to this, yeah. but then they're doing all of these things, you know, kind of just below the radar? Well, I, mean, I kind of view it through this lens, you know, China, the nation. Um, look, all the distractions we, we talked about, whether it's leak, uh, classification issues, um, socioeconomic issues in our, in, in our society, 
um, gun issues, all those things. It's a distraction for us at home. It's as simple as that. Why would they go out of their way to help reduce that distraction? One can argue that if we didn't have an appetite for drugs, then the drug trade would dry up. And that argument has been tethered to the drug issue for decades, mm -hmm. whether it was cocaine or whatever. Mm -hmm. Democracy strength that we talked about already, about that open debate, trying things, everything that is great about democracy allows for it to be taken advantage of as well. So while we're trying to figure out what law enforcement is going to look like, CONUS, moving forward, and while we try to figure out how to stop fentanyl from coming in, our great power competitors can just sit back and let it happen. Right? It's to their advantage. So I, I don't think there's any evidence that the Chinese government, uh, at least not that I'm aware of, are purposely moving fentanyl here. It's a combination of unethical business practices. It's a combination of just not getting involved from a government level. Because ultimately, it's going to end up here. And that impacts our, our home game. And that's to their advantage. So it's, it's, it's simply competition in that sense. Um, you wedge in there the cartels, you know, it becomes a very, very difficult um, challenge. They're equipped. They're manned. They're strategic in the way they go about their business. There's a desire for the product, um, so it's it's a challenge that you know when we're talking about the, all those wars that we've 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 claimed from a law enforcement perspective over the years. Those are political sound bites, but the war on drugs from 1990, I believe it was. I mean, it's still here, and in 10, 20 years, it's still going to be a war on drugs. Maybe a different drug. I don't ever see that going away. My opinion. It'll morph, it'll change, it'll look different, but at the end of the day, someone's going to be making money on some sort of drug paraphernalia. And it's not just the United States, right? It's all Western nations have this problem. And to a certain extent, it exists in authoritarian countries as well. But they can keep that under wraps, right? Because they control the media and they can control the people. Um, and people disappear. So, you know, at the end of the day, uh, these, these types of challenges, um, we all want to see go away, but they've They've been, they've been here for, for a long time and will probably continue. And they will change and they will morph. Um, and something else, even worse, is going to come about, more than likely. Uh, who would have ever thought of fentanyl a few years ago? Who would have thought of opioids when we were dealing with cocaine? Cocaine's still around. That hasn't stopped. Mm -hmm. you know, it's just it's not as, uh, as big of an issue politically. Uh, it doesn't really necessarily kill people. It's more of a recreational drug. Marijuana, right? It was taboo for many, many years and still is in many states, but in a lot of states are going to just legalize it. Just, let's just move on. Recreational drug, move on. Will the same happen with cocaine? I don't know. Society will decide that over time, politically. That's that, that will be decided state by state. It's the beauty of the United States, but it's also a challenge. Is that people get to choose in their state how they want to live. Okay, thank you. All right, so Lieutenant Colonel Kobeck, you got a question in the chat here, and I will, I will get to that. Uh, before we wrap up, but I do uh, want to extend to those in the center here um, in our studio audience. Uh, any any questions you'd like to direct to Special Agent Garbato? Yes, I just had a question you mentioned earlier about the impact of law enforcement, uh, the history of law enforcement uh, with regards to uh, slavery and so forth. Yes. Uh, how is law enforcement approaching? 
the inclusion culture uh, these days? Great question. And it's a, it, there's not one answer to that, so okay. give, give me a little time to kind of build this out. No. Um, most law enforcement agencies that I've been exposed to, much like the military, when you look around the room, it's white men. It's a representation of society. The narrative black on blue defines colors, or defies colors, I should say, because you could have a black officer having a negative interaction with a, a, a black person in the community, and that's considered black on blue, right? So it really isn't so much of a race issue, in my view, as it is a matter of how we go about our business. Get back to that warrior culture, a lack of education, i.e. no PME, um, and you have these things manifest, particularly when times are somewhat caustic. There is no law enforcement, my, my opinion, there's no law enforcement solution to these problems. Right. I mean, you just can't arrest yourselves out of this. And I have the opportunity to teach law enforcement executives. I make it very, make very clear to them, and it's not news to them, right? But sometimes you just need to hear it. But there is not a law enforcement solution. It has to be a whole of government solution. So if you look at crime trends, and I was looking at some of these this morning, back from 1990 to today, the violent crime rate is actually down quite a bit. Now it's rising a little bit at this point in time. Therefore, it becomes an issue in the now. But in terms of 1990 to now, it's, it's almost in half. Gun violence is almost in half. So we're actually safer today than we ever have been. Well, I shouldn't say ever have been. But since 1990, we're actually much, much safer as a nation. Despite all the stuff we're talking about, that's what the statistics say. And the numbers come um, from the Brennan Center, is uh, well-renowned in its, its statistical uh, collection. So if that's, what the stat, if that's what the stats say, what was interesting outside the stats, and I have some notes here is what they're saying, is the issues are socioeconomic and guns, and what they are saying is you must find creative solutions across the country. What does that mean? Well, that actually, in my view, means strategy. I'm a bit of a strategy geek. And I am so compliments of the war college. Right? It was an awakening for me as an Indian. And I'm in the law enforcement community, though. I'm not a Marine. So I look at, for fun, interest, really, law enforcement strategy as a whole. Um, that's the research I do when I'm watching a football game or you know, when the house is quiet. And overwhelmingly, the law enforcement strategy at an organizational level does not exist. So the statistics, and I'm coming up on 500 agencies, is about 95% of law enforcement agencies, state, federal, local, tribal, you name it, do not have coherent organizational strategies. They have a lot of lines of effort, and they're pretty darn good at planning things and getting things done, but from an overall holistic view, does not exist. And that's a problem, and that's a PME issue in my mind. I really believe the answer for anybody that's listening to this that has the ability and power um, is that professional law enforcement education beyond the FBI National Academy. So that's only a 10-week course and only, only touches 1,000 cops a year at best. I would, I, would, I would ask Congress to find money to create some sort of PME life for law enforcement. I believe education is the answer. It's not policy. It's education. And part of that education is the acknowledgement of where we came from, and I think that's I think that's a big barrier. Like people need to hear that part of that vulnerability is we recognize our past. I'm not saying apology, but acknowledgement matters. Now, to that point, there are a lot of uh, organizations out there that are trying to help 
cops get educated on how to build relationships. I'll point one out that uh, we work closely with dedication to community. Um, their whole existence is about how to develop relationships for whoever. In fact, I incorporated in my elective this year. So it mattered to Marines and servicemen and women, but it matters to cops and it matters to community members. You pick it. I mean, if you can develop relationships, just imagine the joint force without it, without relationships. How would that work? Just what? So I think education, relationship building, honesty, acknowledgement. I think those are the things that go into this cocktail that means success. If you go back to the Brenner Center, which I read this morning, we must find creative solutions across the country, not defined. Well, I'm trying to attempt to define what that looks like. I, I yeah, I appreciate that. You, you, you hit it on the, the nail on the head. The education piece is extremely important. And that's what I love about uh, what you're doing here today. So I appreciate you sharing that. And thank you so much for uh, enlightenment on, on my behalf, because learning a lot. Well, well, thank you for that, and, and I learned this through the FBI National Academy and through my, so my association with the Dedication Community. Those are the folks that educated, enlightened, and, 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 and impacted me as an individual, and now I'm trying to share the wealth. Because I, I think that's a huge part of the answer. And then we need policy behind that, right? And we can certainly use some funding for professional law enforcement education for anyone that's out there listening. Awesome. Thank you. You're welcome. Thank you. All right. Thank you. So, last question. I'll uh, take it to Lieutenant Colonel Kobeck, and I'm going to ask it on his uh, his behalf here. Um, ties a little bit into PME, but also some other um, some other sort of possible frameworks. And so, noting that um, we, Marine Corps University and the Krulak Center, we've been fortunate to develop a connection with the NATO uh, Stability Policing Center of Excellence, thanks to one of our previous broadcast guests. And uh, Lieutenant Colonel Kobeck went over to one of their conferences. It was either earlier this year or last year, um, but in Italy. But basically, like to, to sit in and see what NATO is doing in terms of, you know, NATO's military organization, but stability and support to that is a uh, is a part of part of what NATO does, and it's gotten renewed emphasis, you know, since the uh, Russia's invasion of Ukraine. And so, the NATO Ally Joint Doctrine for Stability Policing defines stability policing as quote police-related activities intended to reinforce or temporarily replace the indigenous police in order to contribute to the restoration or upholding of the public order and security, rule of law, and the protection of human rights, end quote. So, Tank Corporal question is, what platforms do you feel would be best to help the United States develop this integration of law enforcement and military as instruments of national power? Is that something like the NATO model of a, like a center of excellence? Is it via professional military education? Um, better crafting of a strategic narrative that touches on it um, or is it in so I'm, I'll unpack the acronym is it within the United States military support to law enforcement operations with law enforcement in the lead yeah I think it's a huge challenge for military and law enforcement I mean when you look at military police um, for the most part their jobs if you will I mean they're essentially a, a street cop right um, like when I drive on off campus, right, someone, someone lets you on base and if you make sure you're not speeding and if there's ever an issue, they have an investigation team to kind of react towards that. Um, so very, very standard. Um, I can't think of a more challenging responsibility to be dropped into a country 
after kinetic energy is <laughs> expended, mm -hmm. and then try to bring that together. Um, it, it would it would be like being a new chief in the worst city in America, uh, where crime is just completely out of, out of touch uh, or out of reach, um, and have to come in there and make an impact. Now, here's the good side of that. I've had the uh, pleasure and opportunity to work with uh, law enforcement executives in the past few years, small, medium, large, and those individuals, some of those individuals specifically, have the education, experience, and personality to make a huge splash. Um, and, and usually it comes down to that relationship piece. But that's CONUS, right? Um, how do you do that? Like, how, how do we do that looking back in Iraq and Afghanistan, right? I wasn't overseas to see that. So for those in the audience that did serve in that capacity overseas, uh, they would certainly be the experts on that. But I think transcending national boundaries, religions, nations, and all that stuff, at the end of the day, people want to be treated like people. People want to be treated humanely. And I, I don't think you could go any further unless you start there. Kinetic energy is over. Treat people like people. Treat people like you would want to be treated as best you can. And I'm not casting judgment because I've never been in that situation. I've never been in a war zone post-war and trying to rebuild, right? Um, but we can, we can point to a few cities right now that have had some departments burned to the ground, right? Not much different in a sense. Where tensions are high, law enforcement is looked at, not a good light, and it's an uphill battle. Again, back to that model, vulnerability, which I know, you know, in, in terms of national security type of industries, when you start using words like vulnerability, it doesn't go very well, right? Um, but you just can't always be the hammer. If the hammer is the only tool in the toolbox, forget about it, right? Once, once hostilities are over, you got to put that hammer away. Have it close if you need it. I mean, I, I get that, right? sworn officer, I wear, a, I wear a weapon all the time. I get that, God forbid, especially nowadays where you never know there's going to be an active shooter situation. That said, that doesn't mean because I have it in my toolkit that I have to pull it out all the time. Um, having the ability to relate with people and treat people with dignity, I think will go a very, very long way, regardless of the country, regardless of the, of the environment, uh, and be respectful of both religions and, and, um, and cultures. And that turns in that that's a education's a big part of that, right? Yeah. So as you mentioned that, um, Tenkrol Koba just wrote in here, you know, reminiscent of General Mattis's quote about like no better friend, no worse enemy. Yeah. Right. Where like, great. You, yeah. you have the hammer, right? But you don't want to use it. You want to be friends. Yeah. Um, and it, he mentions that. And I'm gonna I'm I'm gonna get in my soapbox a little bit again and tie it back to our our own Marine Corps doctrinal underpinnings, sure. where you know, um, at that higher level of, you know, that, that vision so noble, that strategic narrative, that, that actions match words example that Boyd talked about, which feeds into our, both our warfighting and our competing doctrine. You know, he talked about the, what's the best way to destroy an adversary organization, and it's not the hammer. He said the best way to destroy it is so mistrust and discord, yeah. right? So what's the flip of that? How do you cohere it? Trust and harmony. Right, and yeah, there's like there's that. no hammer that gets you trust, right? That's right. There's no hammer that smashes you harmony. It's um, it's those relationships, and that's and that trust. I think starts with 
the golden rule, right? Treat people as you would want to be treated. Show them that you're doing that, that you, that's what you say, and that's also what you're doing. And that's how you build that trust for your side. So Couldn't agree more. All right. So we got Madison, the golden rule here, right at the end to tie it all together. Perfect way to end. I yes. can't think of a better way to do it. Yeah. Um, awesome. All right. So we went a little bit long on this one, but to our virtual audience, thank you for hanging there with us. I think we had, like I said, I've got like, you know, a full page of notes here. We could have gone on for hours, but I'll, we'll spare everybody that. Uh, but thank you for hanging out with us. Uh, to Special Agent Joseph Garbato, FBI Chair here at Marine Corps University. Thanks for taking the time to come out and do this. And uh, look forward to getting this one up here because I think this is a, a very valuable addition to our, you know, it's our PME series, right, at the university, but hopefully it proves to be a, maybe a PLE tool for, yeah. for some folks. Again, thank you, um, thank you, Joseph, for coming on here. Uh, happy to do this with you. And for the rest of the audience, we'll see you on the next episode. Thanks for joining us. As always, we depend on support and feedback from the Team Crewland community to constantly improve our offerings and reach a wider audience. So if you have feedback on this episode, please take a moment to fill out the survey linked in the show notes to help us do better. Also, if you enjoyed this episode, please hit the like button and subscribe to our channel on YouTube or leave us a review on the podcast app of your choice. It truly does help us reach a wider audience. Thank you as always for your support and we'll see you on the next episode. Education is what's important. Training, preparation for the expected. Education, preparation for the unexpected.